Welcome to episode four of the Coaching Badges podcast. We're one month old and just want to thank everybody who's got behind us with their support from day one. It's, it's been crazy and we really appreciate it. As usual, joining me on the show tonight, my co-host Mark Anderson and regular contributors Willie and Mick. All right, lads, nice to see you all. On the pod tonight, we catch up with some of the headlines from the sporting week on by. We'll also be discussing our coaching topic for the show. This week, we're chatting about ball mastery. Dr. Laura Finnegan joins us later on as our guest. We'll be chatting about various topics relating to the Irish game and the research that's been done within this field. Along with our other bits and pieces, we hope you'll get something from the show. So moving on. Mark, what's on the menu from the world of coaching stories this week? Sure thought we'd get the week four anyway. And some great feedback. And I just want to say also, anybody that's sent messages or tweeted stuff, I really, really appreciate it. It's a great source of encouragement to move on. Uh, there was a couple of things. There's actually lots of things that really caught my attention this week. But I think the big thing for me, well, there was one late last night, was the whole whole announcement by UEFA on how they're going to treat young Irish players moving abroad. But I think that's, I say this every week, we're going to be running this podcast forever. Uh, that's a whole subject on its own. And there's a, there's a lot of uh, implications on that. And even my phone was buzzing all night with people messaging and uh, tweeting their own opinions. But one thing, and it's been bubbling away for a few months now, but it's, it's came to fore in the last couple of weeks is the whole issue of dementia in football. Back in 2017, Alan Shearer did an investigation and a documentary on BBC, which was really, really quite powerful. He interviewed and discussed with past legends and how they had been affected or if they had been affected with it. And then he actually put himself up for some scientific research, uh, which he then submitted to some of the scientists and some of the medical people about his own implications and what happened to him. And it caused quite a lot of conversation. And then off the back of that, there's been a lot of scientific reports from around the world revealing the link between football and dementia. And it could be resulting in the even brain damage caused by heading of the ball. Now, when you think about us as grassroots coaches, and it's probably not something that we always think about, or maybe maybe others do, pay much credence to when we're designing sessions or we're coaching at a young age, especially. In 2019, the University of Glasgow had a study, and they actually found a link between professional footballers and dementia. And they did research on over 7,000 uh, Scottish male professional football players, born, I think, between 1900 and 1976, against nearly a quarter of a million of normal individuals from the general population. And the study revealed that the former professional football players had approximately three and a half times higher rate of death due to a neuro-based disease than expected. But it didn't actually go any much further to tell them what may be the cause of all this. So but it was the largest and longest study that they had done today, and they, were, they provided really, really invaluable insight into dementia in their young footballers. Um, and off the back of that, there was a study by the Football Association, and they released new gu- guidelines aged at children on the, uh, from 11 up, restricting the amount of heading that they could do and the practices and, that they could implement with these kids. But it didn't really go any further than that. Um, and it didn't do anything for anybody from 18 up. But they were, the guidelines were, re- were released then in a statement by the FA, the Scottish FA, and the North, and the North Norwich FA. And again, the emphasis was on coaches to model their practices and change some of the direction what they did. But the reason it's come back to me is that Chris Sutton has been very, very vocal. His father is, is suffering with dementia. And I think he's taken this on himself and he's voiced it on his, his uh, radio show on 606 in the BBC. And in all, he's all over Twitter about it. And he's bringing more and more attention to it because he doesn't think the PFA in the UK are active enough in helping people cope with this or bringing it to their attention or issuing guidelines or even doing more to 
to, to make it relevant for, for coaches to understand. So I just thought it was really, really interesting because I can tell you honestly now, in all my years coaching, and I'm doing this a long, long time, I have yet to have anybody come to me and say anything about dementia and how we coach. And I would just, considering that we try to offer this as a service to grassroots and coaches starting off, I think it's a conversation we should be having a, with ourselves in our clubs and with the organizations responsible and the medical about what do we need to do or do we need to change things? And if we don't, or if we do, what does that protocol look like? So it's been on my mind, given every year there seems to be more and more of the older players passing away. And you just wonder, especially, okay, someone said footballs are a lot lighter these days, but they're probably hit a lot harder. And I was listening to, coming actually coming home from training last week, I was listening to Kevin Doyle on News Talk, and they had covered it on Off the Ball. And he was talking about in his time in the MLS, how because of such those amount of injuries in the NFL, American football, how they were such more progressive in taking the players in, explaining and talking to them about the potential risk of this. Um, and he was saying that even as an older player, he could get away with doing the sessions where you had to head 40 or 20 or 30 times in a game or in training to practice these things. So I was just really, really interested. I would love to know what other people's thoughts are, how we address this. And I was even talking to William about this and I was saying, do we really need to have kids at a certain age heading the ball X amount of times? Or is it just about teaching them, as William said, the technique and actually how to do it properly? And that's enough. So that was my thing this week. That, that's a very interesting thing, Mark, and something that I am, I'd like to learn more about. And a couple of things I would say on it. One, heading seems to be, you know, becoming less and less a part of the modern game, either by design or choice. Um, you don't see the ball in the air as much as you used to even 10, 15 years ago. I, I think back to when I played in the 90s and, and the ball was in the air a lot and there was a lot of uh, aerial challenges and heading of the ball led to lots of things like you know broken noses and broken teeth and damage to your face and but I don't know the long-term effect of that you know whether that will come out for another you know 20 or 30 years if, if people are willing to go and have their their brains tested or studied after they've gone um, I certainly would be more than willing to be part of some kind of research like that but one thing that sparked an interest there you, you mentioned the NFL I've only really watched the movie Concussion uh, on it but it then started to do a little bit more research into it uh, and one thing that struck me was that initial hesitance and resistance from the NFL to even acknowledge uh, that all the damage that uh, American footballers were taking to the head could subsequently lead to dementia and, and problems like that down the line so I do think it's something that has to be researched an awful lot more just in respect of of the younger kids that you mentioned there I'm not sure if I'll ever see heading totally removed from the game of football but I do think it's important that kids are taught, if, if it is going to remain part of the game, that they at least head the ball properly. But if more and more pressure comes on this and more and more research comes to show that, in fact, it can be detrimental to the health of players, then I think there's no harm in it being removed from the game. You know, But again, that's just my opinion. I, I would like to see more research done on it and a little bit more awareness been made to, to coaches even. Because I'll give you some examples. Over the last number of years, I've been at... Uh, different clubs with different teams and there's no standard concussion protocol that I've seen. Mm. You know, like we take advice from the medical staff and the doctors at each club, but they all have their own slant based on their experiences in terms of what's best practice. And I've heard, you know, I did a little bit of research into other sports and even in Ireland, there's different return to play um, or return to participation protocols across lots of different sports ranging from five days to three weeks. 
So I think that has to be standardized a lot more. You know, so even if a kid does get hurt, at least we know that we're doing the right thing in terms of minimizing any potential short term damage. You know, and I think that's exactly the point that you just made there. It's about I personally don't want to see heading um, taken out again, but it's about doing the right thing to understand that. And I remember there was a whole um, there was a whole blow up in rugby there about the return to protocol and that and uh, how it affected some of them because the, the pressure on players just to turn out. And there's an, there's an excellent documentary, myself and William, again, we're talking about this, about Aaron Hernandez, uh, one of the NFL players, and it's on Netflix. And it's horrific what his life turned out to be. And again, the NFL kind of acknowledging the amount of hits that he's had. And I watch NFL, I'm a big fan of it. But it's a, it's, it is an entertainment sport. You know, they're pumped with everything to get them back on the pitch because it's about selling that ad space and filling that stadium as an entertainment sport. And they want to see the best playing. But... I suppose the whole thing with the dementia is if you know as a coach early what the protocol and what you're supposed to be doing or if you're given that right guidance, I think that's probably enough to get us all as a very good start. But again, like that, I've community level, uh, basic introductory level, all the way through and even on, on courses that I've done with organizations, it's never discussed, never came up, not anytime I've been there. You've reminded me of something I, I watched and then read up on a bit a couple of years ago now about the enforcers in ice hockey in America talking about the, the entertainment value of the NFL or sport in general. And uh, for anybody who's unfamiliar with ice hockey, and I know very, very little about it, but I do know that um, some years ago, these guys were, were basically paid to start fights uh, in the matches because that's what the crowd wanted to see. So the, the, the Ice Hockey Association at the time recognized this and they saw that it brought great crack to the crowd and it got everybody stirred up. So they'd literally encouraged these guys to be the first guys to row into a fight uh, and it was all a bit staged. But the guys that led the charge took a lot of blows and punches to the head while this whole thing started. And it only really came to light years later when one of these famous enforcers um, committed suicide, sadly, but left behind a note saying that, you know, he had talked to other enforcers uh, and they'd all basically turned, they got depressed, they turned to drink, they started to commit suicide because of all the blows to the head that they'd taken over the years. They didn't really understand what was happening to them, but they all suffered a really serious decline in their psychological health when they stopped playing. Um, so again, it is definitely something that needs more research. I'm certainly no expert on it, but I, I would like to know more about it. And at the very least, as you said, follow best practice in terms of how we protect our players. Thanks, Mark. Uh, really interesting stuff there and, and something I'm sure we'll return to somewhere down the line. Uh, so moving on uh, to our coaching topic for this episode, uh, we've had a brilliant response to the topics to date. Uh, coaches, feedback seems to be that they like the detail and just the open and honest opinions uh, relating to each of the things that we've discussed today. Paul actually mentioned something uh, last week or last episode about young players and their love for the game and their love for the ball, uh, which just had me thinking. Um, so this week, I I'd like to discuss with you guys like what I would regard as a fundamental staple in developing young players and that is of course we would call it ball mastery and um, so before we get into it just simply put it's introducing the, the ball to players from a very young age and encouraging them to master everything about it so lads can I throw this open to you what would be ball mastery to you um I, I think a lot of coaches have an idea that ball mastery is what you see freestylers free do with the ball. You know, these wonderful, wonderful tricks and flicks, you know, which are pretty much unachievable. But for me, it's more than just being able to manipulate the ball like freestylers do. The ball will roll, bounce, spin, swerve and react differently to certain touches from your feet, head or tyres. 
and it's important to understand that. But even more important for me anyway is how a player can receive strike and get away from an opponent while retaining possession of the ball. So I, I prefer to call it technical ability rather than ball mastery. But I, I do see the merits in even some exercises that freestylers do to to develop your touch. Yeah, for, for me, like ball mastery is being able to, you know, use both feet to a really high standard and develop both feet as equally as possible, which, to be fair, nowadays you don't see a whole lot of it. And in my opinion, I just think that a lot of players are only, I mean, not all players, but a lot of players seem to be, they get loads of touches on the ball to train them. But I wonder how many of them are actually spending 10, 15, 20 minutes actually on their own at home against the wall in the backyard and actually working on striking the ball or it's, you know, full volleys, half volleys, one bounce in between, two bounces in between, chest volleys, just to actually get touches on the ball. I wonder, like, do you know how many times they can solo the ball? I used, to, I used to have competitions against myself as a young lad. It could be two hours in the garden working on solos, left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, see how many you can get. So for me, ball mastery, it, it would be being able to use both feet and develop both feet as equally as possible. Yeah, Loads of touches on the ball and being able to, whether it's pass mid or instep, laces, being able to move the ball, your heel, you know what I mean? Outside of your foot, your sole of your foot, just you know, working on different movements of the ball. That's, that, that's what ball mastery is to me. Yeah, I, I agree. 100%. You've both said things there that just have triggered stuff for me. I, I remember watching The Last Dance, actually, and Dennis Rodman talked about how he used to study the ball so he could try and understand the way it bounced, the way it spun, how high it would move, left and right. And then, no coincidence, he became the greatest re rebounder in his time in the NFL because he studied the ball so much. I'm not sure if any of our young players, certainly that I've worked with in recent times, study the ball and understand how it moves, you know, beyond the standard ball rolling that I can chip it and drive it, you know. So there's so much more to it. And I do think, Will, that, that whole thing about... And it comes up again and again, but like I've said it often, I don't see kids out on the street, you know, banging the ball against the wall and just making up games and making up challenges and trying to beat their own scores. And I don't see enough of that. And and when we do work like that with, with players of all ages, you see that there's work to be done. They have a level of competency, but it's quite functional. But you'd love to see them been a little bit more creative. You know, when you watch the top players and people often say, God, their touch is amazing. They can literally, looks like the ball is stuck to their feet. That doesn't happen by chance. I mean, you you got to practice that to be that good, you know? So, uh, yeah, no interesting stuff. So, ju just following on from that, um, did a little exercise there uh, during the week, just watching some video clips that I found on, on YouTube and stuff of people doing exactly what we're talking about, you know, passing the ball off the wall and bouncing it. And, and I counted, and I think you can you can certainly touch the ball 30 or 40 times in a minute just by rebounding it off a wall if you if you get the ball in the air and you juggle it you're into like 60 to 100 times a minute of touching the ball and again to mix point using your head and your thighs and your legs and your chest and your anybody your body that can help control the ball um it, it has to increase that technical ability and it, it's something we're often accused of in ireland you know not producing technical players and i i think we do produce a certain level of technical competency but i think it could be better so then, lads, can I ask, um, you know, we, we would consider it very, very important. So why do you think that coaches, you know, still don't use it that much or that we don't see it enough? Uh, I watch a lot of sessions um, at all ages and all levels, and I don't see 
that what we would regard as that basic ball mastery or basic technical ability work? Why do you think people don't use it enough? I think it's a culture thing. We don't have the same attitude to ball mastery or, or a technical development, technical ability as other countries do. Now, some would argue that it's getting better. Now, certainly the English FA in particular has made great inroads into developing players of very, very good technical ability. And you, you can see them playing in the Premiership now. So attitudes and cultures can be changed. I think at grassroots in Ireland, we tend to concentrate on ball mastery in the foundation phase, say from five to 11. And then it kind of gets neglected somewhat. And you might see a bit of ball mastery then in, in a warm up, you know, for a few minutes, but no real progression. So, I mean, I feel we could, we really should be encouraged to uh, do that right throughout the players' development. I think another thing why coaches don't do it is um, they probably can't demonstrate themselves some of the some of the technical elements of it. But that's easily overcome by by showing videos or sending YouTube videos or curve or DVDs. Or um, basically, there's always one player who can who who do the trick and use him as the demonstrator. So maybe you know, and maybe they say it as boring. I think as coaches in Ireland, we we tend to feel like we we have to entertain the kids. Now we do to a certain extent, but parts of it, you know, has to be has to be probably a, a little boring at, at, at times, not for too long. Um, if if you want them to, um, to develop the the right technical ability, I think that's a really good point because we've often seen that with players that they almost think they're too good to do that. That you know that type of work is uh, that's basic. And and to your point about the foundation phase, yeah, that they see the little five, six, seven year olds up to ten, eleven doing it, and they kind of think, yeah, well, you know, they've to do that because they don't know how to play the game like us. But they don't realise that the ball is a fundamental part of the game, no matter what age you are. You know, so you can you can never learn to manipulate it or or be good at it technically enough. That, I think that's just a perception thing. And you're right, there is times, Mick, where you know you may not be entertaining the players, but it's it's fundamental basics, and you got to do yeah. it. Have a, have a look at what players do. If you're watching a game, particularly in grassroots or before training, what do the players do before training starts? They get, stick someone in goal and smash balls on It's an Irish thing and it, it bugs me. It really bugs me and it reminds me of a, a, a trip I had to Benfica a few years back and this group of, say, five to eight-year-olds were getting ready to go into a cage and the Benfica coach, now they weren't Benfica players, they were just from a local school, and he had the, the cage or the all-weather set up for little uh, dribbling circuits. And uh, he, he, you could clearly see it was about technical ability. And there was about 30 kids outside. And I said, when he opens this door, this cage, there's going to be carnage. Because there's balls all over the place. And I'm thinking, as an Irish coach, what would happen in Ireland? Irish kids would run in there and they smash the balls against the cage. They smash the ball. Because that's, that's kind of what we do. But they ran into that cage and every one of them took a ball. I couldn't believe it. So... There's a definite culture thing there um, with kids. They, they just started dribbling the ball, uh, a few keepy uppies. But let's be honest, if that was in Ireland, I mean, there'd have been carnage. I mean, Cohen's balls everywhere. And that's what we do. Yeah, it's, it's mad. I've, I've uh, funny, even on that, I've rarely even seen kids come down to training with their own ball. You know, if they get there early. Or with a tennis ball. And I know over the years, you've always been an advocate of using balls of different sizes and different weights just to teach you, you know, that you need to use different levels of power and strength and ability to turn the ball and manipulate the ball of different sizes. One of the best things uh, that we used in years gone by was the futsal ball, the kind of heavily weighted ball. Uh, because internally, 
players begin thinking that they can smash that around and they soon realize that, wow, I can't. I, I need to move this ball in a different manner. And it's great to see them working that out. So I, I think that's that's good advice. Just come in on that, Gav. It's, it's actually yeah, of course. just really interesting listening to that. There's one thing that sticks in my head from, I, I was very lucky to spend some time over at Celtic at their academy. Um, and people like Martin Miller, John McStay, and Willie, Mc, Willie McNabb, uh, Greg Robertson. One of the things that I found really, really interesting is they taught the kids what they call the Celtic turns. So it was different size footballs, different weight footballs, and they named them after a Celtic player. So there was the McGeady, the Maloney, the Larson, using the inside, the outside, both feet. And the kids, and maybe it's, maybe it's we're not teaching the kids or not making it sound as fun as we should. So they were doing right foot Larson or dragging the ball or left foot or McGeady. And it was all small movement. It was all with the footballs. It was all, again, at tempo and at pace. And it's no coincidence that they went through a phase and produced players like Sean Maloney and like Aidan McGeady that were technically very good with the ball at their feet. But also, the other thing I also noticed that they did, and they used to call it weak foot Wednesday. So on a Wednesday, you, know, you came up and whatever was your weakest foot, you put a different colour sock on. And you were encouraged to use that at night that night and that Wednesday to develop up. And again, you were scored and marked. Could you take a corner? Could you dribble? Could you do X, Y, and Z before you got to wear two socks the same? So again, playing with the kids' heads, as if to say, making it a little bit competitive, but in a kind of a decent way. Yeah, so I think maybe as coaches, it's about how we deliver that knowledge to make it. It's, uh, it's very, yeah, it's a very good, uh, very good insight there. Sorry, we're just cutting across you there. I'm not there, like, I agree with everything that you say and 100% true, but I was just thinking and I wrote it down here in a piece of paper there earlier on. It's just that sort of what you said about making the different size balls. Is there anything then in like sort of doing passing around those or technical work or training with a smaller ball, say like a size three or four, and then using like size fives for small side of games or 11 v 11 games to help develop ball mastery? Even with older players, say fifteen to nineteen year olds, is there anything in that? Do you think is uh, absolutely there? There's again, if nothing else, what what we forget here as well. Don't just get caught up in the fact that this is going to improve you technically. So using smaller balls and different weighted balls and different size areas and all is also as much a mental challenge as anything. So you're having to work out different ways of getting the ball from A to B. And, you you know, through those initial touches and initial experiences, success and failure of doing it, you'll start to work out little ways. So, yeah, I, there's no harm at all. A, a brilliant thing I saw years ago, and Mick was actually the first person I saw doing it, was having a rondo with a normal-sized football, but all the while a tennis ball is in a hand of one player, and he has to throw that around the rondo square as well. So now all of a sudden you're concentrating on the ball on the ground, but you've got to scan and, and perceive where the tennis ball is and catch it when it comes to you. So the idea for the players was don't give both the tennis ball and the normal ball to one guy. So, you know, you had to be aware of who was the free man and, and keep moving it around. So there, there's so many different things you can do. And it all is tying into that. It's not all just that technical development. Some of it is just physical challenges, mental challenges, but just trying to get you tuned in. So again, we'll try it, you know, make it work. You know, there's nothing wrong with just trying something different. And players like that, to be fair. Even older players. Once you get past that initial thing of this isn't just basic stuff for kids. This is to make you better. And once you get kind of people to buy into that, then then they'll be open to it. And as Mick said, start small. Maybe do it for a couple of minutes, you know, three or four minutes as part of your warm-up initially. And then if it's if it's working, don't be afraid to expand it out. But yeah, yeah listen, no. I, I definitely would encourage that. Try stuff. Yeah, because no, I just put down there as well, like I just said that I think 
coaches are afraid that players will think that some of this stuff is too simple because they're trying to put on these professional sessions even at, at grassroots when really that, whether they're trying to impress the players or the parents or other coaches that might be watching where you know simple is best isn't it if, if you go and watch if you go and watch yeah. like good coaches at all levels of sport and in different types of sport and when you consider that you know a full-time professional athlete is in and has so much contact hours go and watch what they do in a given week you'd be amazed at what they do the variety of what they do and the simplicity of what they do but generally speaking there's lots of fun there's lots of activity and there's lots of challenges and they don't get bogged down in stuff they move on from stuff quite quickly so you'll find that you know an hour and a half or two hour session absolutely flies you know, so yeah, I, I definitely would encourage that. And never, ever be afraid to try something. You're right. Some of us get too hung up on what others are thinking. But the people standing outside the cage watching you aren't doing it. You are. You know what I mean? So go and do it. And, and yeah. don't be afraid to, to try stuff, you know. The, the biggest culture changers will be the grassroots coaches. They've got most of the players. I mean, rather than letting kids smash balls at one another or into, into goals before training or before a game, Get them into little groups, have little rondo, or little keepy ups, you know, or insist on that before training rather than uh, smashing balls around before games. All that extra few touches, uh, five, ten minutes, all adds up. I, I, that's a good point, Mick. I think it's important that people don't just feel that ball mastery is just individual work. You know what I mean? Like at the end of the day, you, you might begin there and do your individual work, but you build then to 1v1 dribbling. 2v1 yes. dribbling, passing, 2v2 movement, link up, you know, yep. 3v2, 3v3, build it up. And then maybe when you get to around, you know, 4v4, then you start to think, okay, well, the next next natural progression is 5v5 games, 7v7, 9v9. But up to the kind of 4v4 point, the players get so many touches of the ball. It's important that they're competent in that. And and you've all mentioned it there earlier, the different types of, of touches to encourage. You know, if you were to ask a player, what way do you touch the ball? They would, and, and say, point it out on my feet. Generally, you know, a kid will show you the instep because that's, that's they've all been taught to play that initial instep pass. But when you start to say to them, well, you can use your big toe and your little toe and the outside of your foot and the sole of your foot and the heel, you start to help them understand that they can move that ball so many different ways than just the basic way. So I think it's important that, again, we, we one, we educate players and show them that and then allow them to try it. Just really, I can't stress that enough. Okay, man. Very good. So uh, every episode, we try to bring guests on to offer a different perspective on the world of football and coaching. And uh, this week, we're delighted to have Dr. Laura Finnegan on with us on the podcast. Laura is a lecturer in Waterford IT and currently at the forefront of some amazing research into Irish football. Uh, welcome to the pod, Laura. It's great to have you on. Thanks, Gavin. And thanks for your generous introduction. No problem at all. No problem at all. So look, to begin with, uh, I've, I've followed you quite closely on Twitter in recent years and certainly read your, your website and blog, some really interesting stuff. But for again, for those people who may not know who you are, you might just give our listeners a, an idea of your own career journey to date uh, and why the interest in Irish football as an academic subject. Yeah, well, I suppose I'm, I'm very lucky in that my full time job is teaching and, and lecturing and talking about talent development. So I have I have space and I have opportunity to go and research and go down at the rabbit holes. Um, football has been always a, a passion of mine. So to be able to merge those two things together has been really beneficial for me. The, the PhD on talent development started, I suppose, like a lot of people trudging home from Poznan uh, back in 2012 and just saying, look, 
I want to, I want to feel like I want to, I can make a difference. I, I think I can add something in this sphere. I want to try and affect change somehow, probably naively try and be a little bit impactful. So I started off the process then of doing a PhD on talent development in Irish football. So that's led me in a lot of different directions and I've got to meet some great people and get involved in different European projects in, in the area of talent development and engage with FAs across Europe as well. So the, the journey over the last couple of years has been has been great. Fantastic. You, you might just explain to us then very, very broadly, what, what is talent development? So what are you researching? Well, my particular PhD had, had a few different strands to it. One of the ones that, that I suppose has been most impactful for me was following five boys that were on the Irish under 15 squad at the time and following them and their journey and their family and their pathway for five years so from 14 year old kind of maybe nervous shy boys into into men has been a fantastic learning experience for for me and also in terms of research in terms of lived experience insights into talent journeys around Ireland and luckily for me they five boys went all different directions so we very much had the the poster child maybe for talent development in Irish football which was DDSL Kennedy Cup captain getting the contract across to the UK versus other stories like people that had to maybe migrate into the DDSL because their own league wasn't strong enough or um, the, the struggle as well maybe when it came to specialising between the GA and, and soccer. So luckily for me there were lots of stories to tell along that pathway. So that was one part of it and, and took a substantial chunk of the PhD. It was a, a seven-year piece of work. Um, other aspects to it then was uh, stakeholder analysis. I think quite early on, I realised that we could have the most fantastic talent development plans on paper, but actually without a nod to culture and to stakeholder relationships, then that's that's exactly where they would stay. They would they would stay on paper and that they would look good on a shelf. So I delved into that. So I spent a lot of time with stakeholder apex from from football so you're, you know you're talking about the FAI um we're talking about the SFAI junior football representatives from from all over trying to paint a picture maybe of the origins of some of these historical animosities between the bodies and feelings on, on different developments at this stage the under 13 and 15 league wasn't in existence so we're dealing with kind of 17 and, and, and 19. Other aspects to it then was a quantitative study where I analysed uh, all of the participants to that point that had been on the Emerging Talent Programme where I looked at the, the date of birth of those boys, we looked at place of birth as well, club. So it told a story about what type of boys were being selected to the programme um, and I suppose try to add some evidence-based research to, to Irish football. Like yourselves, I have a real passion for it and I have an opinion and everyone has an opinion. I think it's hopefully what I tried to add with this piece was some evidence-based research to advance the conversation a little bit. I think you've covered so much there that we could spend literally hours talking about, right? And it's never been so relevant to have such good research, not just that opinions are really important and as you said, everybody has them, but to actually have some facts and figures to back that up in terms of, you know, where we go next. I think we're at a real crossroads. Mark mentioned earlier um, in his uh, news piece 
about the breaking news last night, you know, about kids now potentially up to 18 not being able to go to the UK anymore, you know, as they have done historically. So I think it's a really important time in Irish football to get our development structures right. Will Clark, a guest we had on uh, on the last episode, actually had talked about, you know, making the staying in Ireland experience better. So that people didn't feel that the UK was the answer, you know, and that there are other options. So I think what you're doing is so relevant, Laura. It's it's really fantastic stuff. But um, if I can ask you to try and get into some of what you've talked about in a little bit more detail. I, I read that in your research, uh, you talk about development as an ecosystem. So perhaps you might just give us a little bit um, in terms of what that exactly means. Yeah, this is just about looking at development broader than what happens in the field so maybe outside of what happens of those three four maybe contact hours that that player might have week depending on their situation but considering environmental historic sociocultural factors all that influence on their development and really development is a function of interactions between ourselves and our own attributes but also with our, our broader environment so if we kind of zoom out from the, the club or or the pitch and we look at other things that develop players so that's about you know what are they doing in in school have they got any PE in school um it's about their local environment are there opportunities for play and informal play and research will show us that actually one of the key things that differentiates elite athletes from non-elite athletes is the amount of football play that they get in early development years so outside of that really structured practice also an ecosystem is about what's happened in the past so the influence that, you know, historical relationships have on right now, but it also looks to the future as well. And, and Brexit is a really good example of, of that. I was lucky to be in a call with, with Nick Cox from the Man United Academy last week. And, and he was saying they've come around to this thinking that actually they realise that within the Man United Academy, they can't provide all of the learning experiences that a developing footballer needs. So they're starting to look at the broader context. And that might be for them with, with resources that they can spend more time with grassroots clubs locally and, and raise the standards there. They can give flexibility to their boys to play with school teams or play with other teams and, and engage in different groups. So sometimes it's it, to take this ecological approach is actually to look a bit broader on what's influencing our developing players and that, that's family as well there's loads of different things in that like, there's a lot of research there that would show that later born kids are more likely to be elite athletes so we ask ourselves well why that um and it suggests that it's about again more numbers of this informal play that you're probably you're out the back garden earlier and for longer if you have older siblings so it's really interesting stuff like that. And it's not used ever to kind of select people out of, of pathways or say, well, look, he's the youngest of four, so we'll bring him in instead. But more to do with, with opportunities. How can we give these extra play opportunities to everyone if we know that they, they do give an advantage? So that's the idea about this ecosystem, that there's a lot of things impacting on development, even at, at school as well. So we actually can improve a lot of that. Like, as I say, think think broader. Is it forming partnerships with other local sports? So take your football club. Can you form a partnership with gymnastics clubs? You know, encouraging kids. All about the transfer skills that we might we might talk about. Is it lobbying for general sport infrastructure? You see, again, some academies in the UK are building playgrounds because 
that kind of free play idea has has diminished over time. Opening communication channels with schools um, was an interesting one. I read a really interesting study about uh, a club and what they started to do actually is talk to school teachers because they reckon they learn a lot about their athletes from how they are in school in terms of their willingness to learn and to and their levels of motivation as well. So it's it's learning about and it's challenging our athletes, um, but broader than looking squarely at the pitch. I, I like that. I've, I've watched a thing called QB1 on Netflix recently. And one thing, it's basically uh, American, American collegiate football, American football. But what struck me about it was they have these uh, support structures for the students about their studies. Uh, and they have to hit certain levels in their studies before they're allowed to train or play. So all of a sudden, the teachers work with the coaches in terms of making sure that the, the athlete is developing kind of a more rounded view than just on the pitch. Uh, I thought that was very interesting uh, and something that, yeah, I think we, we need to do a lot more of. Um, I visited a club last year in Europe and, and a, you know, a professional club, but certainly not a high profile club. But what struck me was within their confines, they had basketball courts and swimming pools and judo areas for the players to do. You know, so outside of their football development, um, they had all these other things that they would engage with on the campus. And I thought that was very interesting. Um, so the kids, you couldn't say they were ever bored. There was lots of stuff to keep them engaged on and off the football pitch. But then they did other stuff in the classroom and auditorium work. And it was just interesting to see how they took a different approach to what might be our kind of traditional approach in Ireland. And it's interesting you mentioned that that was for outside of their football development, because actually where a lot of, of thought is going now is actually that those things to be able to do those things on the side almost really do impact our, our football development positively so yeah. in the sense of the transferability of skills so you know the basketball that you mentioned brilliant for for spatial awareness you know martial arts kinesthetics all that kind of stuff the transfer yeah. of skills and we talk a lot about the tan transfer being about technical development but one of the really interesting things that I took from one of my studies here was that if the boys engaged in something else now maybe you know if they only played football that that was fine this happened maybe with a school team but they played somewhere else to get their confidence back and treated very much almost as a as an arena of comfort that the research will, will call it and um, if you're struggling in a particular maybe high performing environment playing somewhere else get your confidence back and you kind of you, you bring that here right. as well so this is interesting oh, it's fascinating stuff just going, just jumping in there, but given how fine and the the, the line for success for kids, who we, if you look at Irish kids that go across the water to try make a career for themselves, and how the margins are so so finely defined to get there, I think it would be very remiss if we didn't go back and examine what we're doing um, and what these call, uh, and what what other areas that we can do. There's a guy at Celtic called well, he used to be at Celtic. He's finished now, called Martin Miller. And he gave me some fantastic advice very, very early on when I was on when I was coaching at a community. And I'd be saying, your job is very simple. Imagine you're giving these kids an imaginary backpack and you need to fill it with as much information that you possibly can so that they're all an individual project. So no matter what they go on and do and achieve, they can reach into this backpack of their experience that they've had and pull out some information that will help them, whether it be in college, a job, relationships at home or themselves. Now, you're only putting all football knowledge into that backpack. It's going to be a very small one. So I just think you're completely right with that. I think kids need to have as wide, um, and I love when you talk about culture as well, I think they have to have that wide learning ability. 
they draw on all these different emotions and different skill sets. And it leads me to my questions about specialization um, and what, what your thoughts are about uh, kids specializing in sport at such an early age in just one sport. Because it's, it's something that you hear quite a lot, especially in Ireland, in the ever-ending challenge between GAA and football. And, no, you can't play this and you must, uh, you must play that. Yeah, look, there's no doubt that it's a it's a topical one and it's a it's a difficult subject to to address as well. There's a positive to early specialization in, in that it is associated with short-term success. So if we're talking about how we measure success, if that's having some of the best underage international squads, well then yeah, we'll do that better by specializing early. Unfortunately, though, um what the research does show and, and look at, and there's been a lot of this um, in other countries, that actually it does lead to things like overuse injuries. So maybe you're only dealing with one kind of pattern of movement. So you're, you're probably more likely to get injured if you specialise early. Really interesting stuff coming out of Germany as well and, and German lead athletes that actually those that specialised earlier tended to drop out earlier because they were more likely to suffer from things like burnout and just kind of being, being fed up of being in that routine for so long and that kind of lack of other ways to express yourself and, and other arenas and you know you can become very narrow in your identity of I'm I'm a footballer and once that's challenged for the first time that's when a lot of kids will say actually I'm, I'm dropping out of here. But, I mean, we can encourage kids to diversify their learning experiences through sampling different sports and stuff. And th those informal play activities that I mentioned were, were really key, just, you know, letting kids kind of explore football away from maybe that direct instruction as well. But, um, yeah, a key is, is choice and autonomy and kids feeling like they have a choice and an individual say maybe in what they do will bind them more stronger, more strongly to your sport and they're more likely to stay involved. And again, what are we talking about there in terms of success? Well, if keeping numbers in the sport broader than just those that make professional levels as well, if that's a measure of success, well, that's something we have to explore as well. There's, there's two things you said there, Laura. What do we define as success for, for young elite or so-called elite athletes? And second, like, I mean, it is their choice if they want to do, but also that parents need to go on that journey as well. And instead of pigeonhole them into that one sport, that be comfortable with the knowledge that, listen, if they diversify, isn't going to make them less of an athlete. Very interested what your thoughts were. I was interested in listening there, saying about even an injury. That's something I never even thought about, that like if you're specialised in one sport and you're doing the same, whether it be movements or, situ or, or drill, you're going to, whereas in other sports, you can be much more wider. Yeah, that, 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 there's so much there to even think about. Yeah, we did a study a few years ago on ETP players and looking at the other sports that they engage with. Again, this was across the, the programme. And those that played other sports were less likely to, to get injured. They were less likely to miss training days in football through through injury. That, that's very interesting, actually. And and something there that Mark has just triggered in my head, and I know Laurie, you've you've done some work on this in terms of dealing with parents. So while it's easy to say, you know, that the likes of the FAI and the RFU and the GA must all align in terms of what we want for our players, 
But the parents are, are so critical to this piece as well. Is there an education piece there, you feel? Because I've, I've talked to parents over the years and, and they're adamant, you know, their son is going to be a footballer. And you kind of say, well, there's a whole lot more to it than this. So do you think there's an education piece there for dealing with parents or how best can we improve that? Yeah, there definitely is. I mean, there, parents are so important in, in this journey. If we're talking about this, you know, ecological approach and, and how we look at it, they're generally how we get involved in sport in the first place. We'll probably engage in the sports that our parents did because they're more likely to bring us to them. They're more likely to see them as, as worthy and, and um, kind of positive pastimes and they act as a role model for us. So they're really important in getting kids involved in sport in the first place. They're the ones that provide the, the tangible support like, you know, money and, and travel. And up until the age that, that maybe adolescents and, and, and later learn to do this themselves, but parents also interpret the experience for kids so early on for kids it's well if we win we're good and if we lose we're bad and it doesn't get any more complicated than that really so we nearly need to have spoken to the parents and and told and taught them how to, to talk to their kids like that that car ride home well you know how do we interpret what happened there you know we might have lost but actually we did x y and z really well so that's really important um, yeah, definitely engage with them. Clubs, most clubs, I think, do a good job of that initial meeting. Sometimes that's just about logistics. You know, these are the times, these are the requirements. But delving a little bit more into that and then having it a more regular thing as well. Maybe even point them to, to articles on people that are doing really good work in this about providing empathy and, and managing expectations as well as a key one. Um, Stephen Finn and, and a few more of us um, put together a parents conference last year that tried to do this but actually the, the take up was, was quite small in it so I don't know whether parents realise really how important their role is in this but they're, they're really important stakeholders so I wouldn't involve I wouldn't advise kind of shutting them out or keeping them at arm's, arm's length where they also were really important was when kids when it came to making that time to specialise, and, and, and don't get me wrong, that, that has to happen. You know, just somewhere along the, the pathway, maybe that kind of 14, 15 age group, kids will, will do that. But actually, they tended to talk to parents about that, and parents were a really strong influence on that. So even in that sense, keeping your parents with a, a positive insight or, or um, a perspective, I suppose, on your sport will, will help. Laura, I think you should do every parents, even at every club in Ireland. <laughs> yeah, no problem. You can do deal with my parents. <laughs> no, I have to say the vast majority of people, you know, that I've dealt with over the years are well-intentioned. They want the best for their children. I'm a father myself. I understand that. So, you know, we all want the best for our kids. But I do think that little bit of, you know, those nuggets of information around the success rates, the realities of, you know, where their, their kids will end up, uh, that it's also important that they, they get educated properly and that they have a, a, a decent life outside of football, you know, um, because for the vast majority of kids, football won't be their life, you know. So, yeah, I, I think that's important. Uh, rather than avoid parents, certainly deal with them, talk to them, you know, communicate better, just as we do with players. I think that the player communication in recent years is so much clearer than it was even in, in go back five years, where players, you know, a lot of the time just showed up, were told what to do, and that was pretty much it. You know, what, what pleased me in a recent feedback session we did with uh, some players that we're currently working with is how many of them pointed to the fact that we were interested in what they did at home and in school and with their friends and in work 
away from football, as well as been interested in giving them, you know, proper feedback about how we felt they were developing in that respect. So um, I do think communication and education is, is just massively important. The language we use as coaches, and you touched yeah. on it there, emotional intelligence and empathy, everybody's using them as buzzwords and culture at the moment. But I think they'll make you a better coach and a better understander of how young people um, pick up information for you in the language that you you use both in delivering a session, but also talking to their parents. And I love what you talk about in defining success. I always remember someone said to me, uh, uh, what do you want to do this year? And the kids in the group I was working with um, were, were only a community club and aspirations or expectations from the club were never anything big. But for me, the, the, the opportunity for success was for them to be able to use both feet by the end of the season. Um, and if you can set that as, or if you can define success, that's achievable early, early and can be built on. I think it's better than saying that we're going to go unbeaten or we need to win a cup or we win the league. Stuff that has no control. So I think the I think the language we use is very, very important. Yeah, definitely. Laura, you mentioned something earlier that I'm really interested in and I'd like to bring you back to it if possible, please. Uh, it's the whole piece about relative age effect. Could you give us some insight, please, into how relative age effect, you know, is is present in Irish sport in terms of what kids get picked for squads, etc. And then you, you use a great phrase in some of your work, um, about this whispering talent, you know, and you might just explain that to us a little bit and how we might help nurture that. Yeah, well, for, for those that, that aren't familiar with the, the term relative age effect, it refers to preference of selecting footballers born earlier in the year. Often it's due to enhanced maturational factors over the team that's born later in the year. This, this can be physical and the ones that we probably know it more to be about. But actually what's really interesting is that it can be social and, and cognitive as well. So really interesting stuff about um, those born earlier in the year are more likely to be team captains as well, because kind of socially, maybe they're that little bit more advanced. And between a conversation with ourselves as adults, almost 12 years grow or 12 months grow, should I say, doesn't have, have much of an impact. But at those really key points in adolescence, 12 months is, is a huge growth. So more footballers born earlier in the year. For us, it's that January, February, March time. For the UK, it's September, October and November. Tend to get picked for representative squads. Why is that an issue? Well, it, it leads to this kind of biased view of potential and almost then becomes can become a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy then. These are the players that are more likely to get selected for representative squads, exposed to more game time, maybe a better standard of, of coaching and, and opposition and teammates and all of that kind of thing. And those less mature players can get overlooked. In the emerging talent sample, 40% of the boys were born in quarter, fun, quarter one. So 40% were born in January, February and March. Interestingly, the CSO will tell us that it's almost an exact 25% breakdown in each quarter. So our earlier boys were, were way overrepresented. And if we compare that to 12% of the sample were born in quarter four. That's not unique to hear. And again, it's it probably speaks to a bit of a wider piece that I would hope to do in the future about assessing, you know, maybe using something like FAI Net to actually assess the full scope and, and see where this is really kicking in but it does tend to get stronger the further up the chain you get so um grassroots clubs maybe rural 
lower numbers will have a less relative age effect because there's less to choose from. The more you have to pick from for competitive structures to win, the more pressure is to select move the more physically mature boys. Um, from that, then going to use the terms like a whispering talent and, and a shouting talent. And really that idea, the shouting talent is perhaps the, the biologically mature boy that, that will stand out um, greater fitness levels because he is more mature, more advanced. There's interesting work from UK academies that looked at boys age 12 in that kind of setup. And there was maturity levels from nine to 15 year olds. There was a six year different band wow. within boys that were all chronologically the same age. So are we comparing like with like as well? So there's loads of, of, bit of, bit of bits of work there I'm doing with a couple of, of clubs in Ireland that I think will be really interesting. I think that's a really key piece of work, particularly if we have underage structures that jump these two years. So within one age band, 12 months is a lot. 24 months is a lot. Um, when we are talking about those key years of, of kind of 13 to 16 in terms of, of growth rates. From what I've seen, Underage League of Ireland squads and teams, and I'd encourage people to go and have a look at their own if they haven't after this, just, just to see are they heavily stacked with the earlier born kids? And what you might find as well is that if there are a couple of maybe November or December boys, they're actually probably biologically mature. So they are the, the genetically um, mature and earlier. And we thank our parents for about 80% of, of when that happens. So it's not a new thing. It does happen everywhere, particularly within, you know, invasive youth sports. Whisper and talents are the ones that we might not see, the ones that would probably get overlooked. They studies in, in Spain looked at this and they looked at skill levels, and there's often like a higher skill level with that group. But they're probably the ones that aren't going to stand out on a trial basis. If you have kids in on trial one session, we're going to select the guy the, the kids that are going to stand out here, probably. And maybe that's physical factors, then they won't get left behind. There's a couple of methods. There's no real one silver bullet of producing yeah. it. Um, coach educational awareness to to see, to actually just go and look and know that it is a, a prevalent issue is a key one. I think the place that most people hear about it first was from Gladwell, maybe in Outliers is where a lot of people seem to come across the terminology first. But in reality, it's it's been around in, in academia since the, the mid-80s. But the reality is that we probably haven't done a good enough job to try and reach out to coaches and see where we can help reduce that. I, I, I think it's an area that that needs more knowledge and education because the amount of people that I stand next to football matches and, and a lot of the time, some of the first things they'll say is, geez, look at the size of that boy or that girl. You know, they're, they're immediately drawn to the physicality without ever really understanding their age or what they're capable of or how mature they are. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think it's important. I've, I've worked with some unbelievably talented kids over the years who you might look at initially and, and certainly not be inspired or, or by their size. But when you actually get to see what they're capable of, it's so important that they're given a platform to, to show. I'm very interested to hear that technically some of those kids in quarter four might be better. Do you think that's something to do with they've just had to work out different ways of getting around these bigger players, you know, and... and potentially manoeuvring better that is interesting yeah for what's really interesting about those quarter four players is that if we can get them into and 
kind of keep them on our development pathway, they are actually the ones that are more likely to convert to senior athletes. And um, yeah, the hypothesis is that kind of underdog effect that they've had to kind of fight a little bit more. They've, they're in terms of their resilience, they've, they've been knocked back. So they're kind of used mm. to that. It's not a case of maybe the shouting talent that has swan through underage sport and then there's maybe that gap then towards senior uh, senior levels and everyone's caught up potentially with with him or her physically so they don't have that anymore there's two words that I think are really interesting and we could kind of come back to them in this discussion about relative age and, and maturity and a focus on all of that is opportunity and challenge so can we give the late maturing or yeah. or the quarter for kids opportunities in pathways which I would I would wager that they're not maybe getting enough of now but what's often overlooked is the quarter one kids as well so Gavin the, the exact kid that you mentioned there the one that will stand out and people will say gosh look at him or, or look at her yeah if we allow them to be able to physically dominate in youth sport are we challenging them enough like are we doing them a disservice for when everybody else catches up and maybe that quarter four has you know has has work has had to work really hard on their technical and tactical ability because they couldn't rely on their physicality so how do we challenge those early mature and and or because they're not always the same thing um quarter one kids even even more i, I love the story from from ajax what they did it with with matthias delict he was an early mature boy and you look at all the academy photos he had, I think, two years kind of physical growth, even with boys that are in the same chronological age group as him. So what did they do? I mean, did they just keep him at centre half? Well, well, no, they played him on the wing because they wanted to develop another foot or a different kind of facet of his game. Did that mean that they probably lost a couple of extra games because they didn't have him as a centre-back? Yeah, probably did. But if we are truly going to go down this idea of this long-term athlete development then they're the sacrifices that we have to make to balance this opportunity and challenge yeah couldn't agree more and it mark uses the word brave a lot and he's absolutely right it takes you got to be brave to do that and and to stand up to your peers to say yeah i'm going to play my best center half as a winger you know what i mean to to, to help him develop long term but that's really interesting um funny in the last week i've come across two people i listened to rio ferdinand uh, on another podcast talking about you know, as a kid, he would have been quite physically mature and he went and played against men. He sought out playing football, you know, on the streets against grown men just to try and challenge himself because it was too easy playing against kids. Uh, and a second thing I'm I'm just starting to watch at the minute, but it's it's a very good documentary called A Kid from Coney Island. And it's about um, a kid in the NFL, uh, the NBA uh, basketball star. I think it's Stephen Mabry. I don't know too much about him. But what struck me very early in the documentary was he said that he was the youngest of five boys. And he felt he learned his basketball skills because all his four brothers before him had been basketballers. And they said, anyone who was interviewed said, Stephen eventually became the best of the five because he took little bits from all of his other four brothers. So one brother was really good at dribbling and one was really good at passing and one was really strong and one was really quick. So he said, I want to be like all of you. So he tried to develop his game based on his brothers and played against his brothers as a kid, you know, and he felt that that made him better. So that, I thought that was really interesting. You know what I mean? that I don't know if enough kids go and seek out those challenges. They like being the dominant player and, you know, when they're very young because they like to show people how good they are. And I get that. But it's as they start to grow older, 
you know, we need to challenge them to an appropriate level, I think, as coaches uh, to make them, you know, be step outside their comfort zone a little. So, no, really interesting stuff. I find it fascinating, like I mean, and I wonder that is that Q4 kid that we talk about? I wonder is that our mythical street footballer that everybody goes back and talks about? Because, like, when you play on the streets, there was no age. It was try keep the ball, otherwise, if you gave it away, you, you weren't getting it back. So, I wonder is that Q4 person that we talk about, uh, that mythical street footballer? And, and I totally agree with you. And I work with the adage if you're good enough, you're old enough. Um, and we should have a better blend and we should have a better mix to challenge the kids that dominate because of their physicality, because we're not doing them just as much as the younger kid and the, and the so-called, and I hate using the word smaller kid or whatever terminology, uh, we're not doing them any service long-term. And I go back and I, Gavin's right, I talk about being brave on the ball and I talk about being brave in what we do. And I think we're at a tipping point in Irish football where given what's going on and to talk about transfer for young players, are we equipping kids correctly to go and deal with those challenges? of when they step into a professional setup in the UK or wherever it may be, if we're holding them back because we're not challenging how we do things and we're not taking that long-term holistic approach, like as you referenced with Ajax. And it kind of gets me wondering, like, what do you see yourself over the last maybe 10 years or so as some of the most significant kind of research has been done for, for football in Ireland? Or where do you think we need to be doing more research if we are to flip what we do and make ourselves better? Uh, in producing players, athletes or, or individuals that can compete at the highest level because we have it in certain sports but we just can't seem to bridge it in others. I think the first thing that needs to be done from my own perspective is just a, a warts and all analysis of where we are now and um, you know that and that requires a lot of, of faith from the FAI as well because you know understandably they are the the owners almost or, or the, the curators of these talent development pathways and, and structures. So it, it would take a lot for them to allow people in and, and be constructive about some of the issues. So if we look at, I referenced FAI net earlier, like that's up until now, we've never had that before to actually now be able to say, well, take the relative age that we've spoken about as well. Is there a particular pinch point that that starts to come to the fore or Actually, is it there from when kids engage in sport in the first place? Is it the parents that are taking that decision to maybe leave off those kids a little bit longer? So where does that where does that come in? Um, there's been lots of research done on the relative age effect, but I do think that it's important to look at it within the particular context. So that would be one example of how we could use that type of research. I think there's benefits for the governing body as well to, to use this research. And one example was... I looked at place of, of birth in that emergent, in the Emerging Talent Programme as well. And to look at how many boys essentially were feeding into the, the 12 or 13 development centres at the time around the country. And where the FAI might face a lot of criticism about having two centres at the time in Dublin. Actually, when you look at the data, it probably justified three or four in terms of the amount of boys that there was per centre. And probably another one in Kildare and Meath as well, if you're looking at... A, population centres so it's not as if you know people aren't using research and data to, to beat anyone with a stick but I think using evidence and, and using this data to help inform decision making I think is really important I think looking at developmental trajectories as well taking that kind of unbiased approach to it so maybe looking at I mean 
we're all familiar with the players that might have been kind of average in terms of youth football that have gone on to represent Ireland at senior level. Looking at those trajectories and histories and seeing what we can learn from those as well. And I think it, just an approach and an openness to bring people together uh, and engage in this research because there's there's a lot of really you know, talented academics to, to do that around the country. We're trying to do something like that in that we formed a football research group in Waterford IT where we are trying to align some of this together so a lot to do but um but no it's it's an exciting place to be and maybe people will it'll be expedited a little bit now I mean it, it should have been something that was that was at the forefront over the last number of years but maybe it might be something that's speeded up a little bit now I, I think it's the perfect time you know we really we've learned so much I think years ago if I'm honest if I go back there was probably a little bit of a reluctance to you know to treat football academically you know and to start to dig into data there was maybe a little bit of naivety around as you said are people going to use the the data that they find to beat us with <laughs> you know what I mean whereas now we're seeing that actually we're discovering some brilliant things we're discovering some fantastic data and we should use it to our benefit to help just become better at what we do like ultimately the people who have that kind of open mindset you know will be the people I hope that will drive the game forward uh, in this country and beyond uh, and I think if we are willing to to learn from our past mistakes and look at what the data is telling us um, and make good informed decisions around that it, it can only make us better you know so now I'm, I'm really interested to see where this goes people like yourself and the work that you do is fantastic and I, I really appreciate you coming on so Laura thanks for that every week uh, we ask our guests to pick their dream fantasy five-a-side team be it players or coaches uh, that they'd like to work with and why so perhaps you'd give us your your dream fantasy five-a-side team please Okay, well, see, this, the, the conversation has been about ecological development. Um, I'll, I'll go with something different here than maybe. Um, I'm going to pick, actually, my father was a goalkeeper. We talked about parents and we talked about the role models. And I grew up in Blorgan Football Club up in the Cooley Peninsula every every weekend sitting behind his goal. And that's really inspired that love of football in me. So Sammy Finnegan, I'll have as uh, I'll have in there. Brilliant. Um, I'll go, if we're talking about role models and actually place of, of birth as well, Steve Staunton, I'm going to throw in there. Obviously a local idol growing up in Dundalk, really what got me hooked in, into Aston Villa. There was a huge Irish contingent there at the time. So I'm, I'm going to throw him in there as well. Um, gosh, I'm going to go. I'll, um, I'm going to throw a random one at you now and uh, say that that love for, for Aston Villa at the time extended to my first real international idol, which was Dalian Atkinson. To the extent that I even picked Dalian as my confirmation name. So, uh, <laughs> Brilliant. <there's... laughs> That's commitment. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say tattoo or something there for a minute, but that's okay. No, it's even longer lasting than. <laughs> and um, one for one for the females there. I'm going to throw in Mia Ham in terms of, of one of the international idols and, and figures, and probably the first female footballer on an international Superb. that jumped out. Um, I'm on four. Well, I'll, I'll balance it out with a little Iniesta in the middle. Then, if we're talking about our <laughs> our little playmaker in the middle, that's that's where we go. So that is fantastic, <laughs> and I I love that approach to that team. 
That's definite thinking outside the box stuff. Well done. Excellent. So, Laura, that's it. Listen, again, thank you so much for joining us. We could talk for hours, but I, we appreciate your time. Uh, I know you went to visit Santa yesterday. I hope that went well. Uh, and let us be the first to wish you a Merry Christmas and hope to speak to you in the new year. Keep up the great work. Thanks very much. Thanks for the invitation. Take care. Cheers. So moving on, I really enjoyed that chat with Laura. Uh, we could really talk to her all day. Um, highly knowledgeable and interesting in terms of what she does. But to move on, uh, just give some coaching shout outs. A big thanks to Step to the Ball. Um, guys, who got in touch with me on Twitter this week. Thanks, guys. Uh, had a really nice message from um, John McLean as well on Twitter, uh, at John T. McLean during the week. Finally worked out who coaching badges was. Well on John. Uh, and I had a lovely message from a, an old school buddy of mine uh, at Alan M. C. Carthy. Alan McCarthy. I haven't heard from Alan in a long, long time. Like we're talking, oh goodness, 20 years or more. But he, he reached out. He found the podcast. He's coaching under 12s, I think, down at Greystones. And he said he's finding some great just takeaways to, to try with his boys and his, his players. So it was brilliant to hear from Alan. I'm, I'm glad that he's getting something from the podcast. Job so, done, then. yeah, job done. Yeah, no. And I must say, listen, I, I can't. we're only on the air a month, right? But it's it's blown us away. We did this just because we thought we'd like to talk about coaching um, ourselves, as we always do. And with Corona at the minute and COVID, we've been unable to kind of meet as much as we normally would and, and just chat and waffle about football. But, you know, the reach of this thing, it's been listened to by thousands of people. We've had hundreds of messages. We've been listened to on every continent in the world, which is bizarre. I think we're up to about 40 countries where people have listened and tuned in. And we passed the 300 city mark the other day. So it's it's mental. I can't really. even name 300 cities, Dan. <laughs> but no, so a sincere thanks to everyone who's just kind of supported us as we've tried to get this thing up and running. So, Mark, uh, moving on. Coach's War Chest for the week. What have you got for us to check out? Well, two documentaries and one... One of them, well, one of them is a little bit self-indulgent, but the other one I'm going to start with is Maradona. And the sad demise of, depending on the week, of my favourite player, whether it's him or Messi, there's very little for me to choose between the two of them. But um, a guy that I just thought typified what I loved about football, flaws and all, ability, skill, kicked, shit pitches, the whole lot, but produced some amazing stuff. Um, and he's up there with Messi. There's very little between the two of them. But the, last year, HBO and Channel 4 had a documentary that was out. and It's a two-hour one. And it, it just picked a specific time in his career, which was the, the transfer from Barcelona uh, to Naples in Italy. Um, and there was 500 hours, I think I read, of unseen footage that they knitted together. But it was also, it wasn't just about the football. It was everything about how he embraced the city, the culture, how they idolised them and how we brought that city together to challenge the so-called poor north, how they challenged the richer cities down south at the Turins and all of that, um, for the Tuskedetto. So the same people that made uh, the documentary about Ayrton Senna and Amy Winehouse that did it. Um, so really good music in it, really, really slickly put together, lots of unseen footage, as you said. And it, what I really liked about it is it peeled back the layers of a very complex individual. Um, to expose him and show him for who he was. As I remember, one of his coaches, I think, said uh, for, two, for, for him, there was, two, there was two players. There was Diego, who was the guy off the, off the pitch, who was easily, easily influenced, less charismatic, uh, compulsive, 
And then there was the Maradona who was on the pitch, who was every minute we seen. So check it out, uh, especially given his sad demise. The other one, uh, again, a little bit self-indulgent. It's uh, it's not easy to get, but you'll find it on Amazon Prime and you can download it. It was in the cinemas and that is called Three Kings, the makers of modern football. Um, and if you think about British folklore of football, there's probably three names that probably take on everything that's good about football at that time. So some up was be Bill Shankly and Jock Shalene. So it profiles and gives you kind of the whole story and their backstory about these two, three guys that came from the same area in Scotland um, and went on and probably shaped football at that time for Britain. Steen, again, um, an absolute idol of mine at Celtic. Shankly, again, at Liverpool. And, of course, Busby at United. And how they, how they just embraced with the cities and how they embraced with the clubs that they were identified with. Again, again, a bit like Maradona and a bit like some of the greats and some of the best. How they just set perfectly in, in tune with what, they, what the city, what the club and what they were about. Working class backgrounds. They talk about them and um, being down the pit and they didn't like that, didn't want to do that, but had to find something else. But also, strange enough, very close and very good friends. In fact, so much so that Matt Busby actually championed for Bill Shankly to get the job at Liverpool. Um, and Shankly... Never did that. Yeah, and Shankly was the first person to speak to Jock Steen and say he was immortal after Celtic won the European Cup in 67. So check it out. Again, the same people who made Senate made this, so there is, there is content there that you know is going to be of a very, very uh, high quality. It's really, really good. And even though they were huge rivals professionally, how personally they were very, very good friends, very close. And it's incredible to think when you think some of the teams made so much rivals. Um, and, but also what I was really interested about, three very, very working class people who brought out the best of people on the pitch. So even as we talk about um, leadership and emotional intelligence, and I talk about that all the time, how back then it probably wasn't used those words, but how you can manage. Ruthless, but very, very good. So yeah, you can check it out. It's really, really good. Three Kings, the makers of modern football. Brilliant. I've, I've seen the Maradona one. It's exceptional. Um, and I've seen the the Senna one again. That those guys putting those documentaries together, are brilliant the way they present the information. I haven't seen the the Three Kings, and really looking forward to seeing that. So that I'm really going to look at that. And again, very very sad, you know, to think Maradona's only sixty, yeah, um, and how revered he is still. Like you know, Argentina gave three days of official mourning for the guy. You know, like an absolute genius and and a flawed genius. But yeah, for for younger players who probably have only really ever thought, you know, there was Messi and Ronaldo who were the best in the world. You got to encourage them to go look back beyond that and and check out the Lycia Maradonas. There's been some incredible people who've played this game over the years, but Maradona certainly was one that always and and still will for many, many more years capture people's imaginations. So brilliant stuff, Mark. Just on that, just on that, like we we spoke earlier on at the very start about the coaching topic of Paul Mastries. Go back and watch some of Maradona's warm-ups. Laces, Pumba Kings, Untied, Dancing to Music, and Juggling the Ball. And it's just like, it, I personally think it should be the warm-up for every player. But- <laughs> but don't tell Willie Terrell. No structure. No structure. <laughs> Listen, that's, that's absolutely brilliant, Mark. Thank you very much. So, um, coming to the end of the show now, uh, the coaching homework for this week. Uh, as this week's coaching topic was all about ball mastery, Uh, we'd ask you to try uh, a two-feet juggling challenge with your players. Simply keep the ball off the ground for as long as they can following this sequence. So it starts with one touch on your right foot, then one touch on your left foot, then two on your right, two on your left, three on your right, three on your left, and so on. And see how high your players can get. If you get to level 10, you're going to touch the ball like 110 times. If you get to level 20, 
all of a sudden you're up at kind of 400 plus touches. If you get up to level 30, which is really now mastery stuff, you're, you're at over 900 to 1,000 touches. Uh, the best scores that I've witnessed over the years have seen good players get to kind of level 25 to 30. Um, even coaches, try it yourself and see how hard it is. But it's good fun and, and definitely will help their technical ability. Uh, so good luck with that and enjoy it. So that's it. Uh, time flies when you're talking football. The end of the fourth episode. My thanks ever as ever to the lads, um, Mark, uh, Willie and Mick this week. Uh, our sincere thanks to Dr. Laura Finnegan for joining us tonight. Some absolutely brilliant research being done in understanding and learning how best to improve how we develop our young players. Um, really looking forward to keep an eye on what further research happens over the next couple of years. Finally, thanks as ever to the coaches out there for your continued dedication to your sport. We really salute you. Please give our pod a follow and help us to spread the word. Don't forget to leave us some comments uh, so we can improve how we help you in your coaching journey. Get in touch with us as always at Coaching Badges on Twitter. Remember, when it comes to coaching, there's no right or wrong way, but there's always a better way. <laughs>